The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome. Everybody here in the room, welcome to you. Welcome online. Welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. And visitors, we're really, really glad that you're with us this morning. We're honored by your presence And we just want you to know that this is a church being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. So if you want to join us on that journey of transformation, we hope that you'll reach out to us. We hope we'll get a chance to talk with you, get to know you, connect with you, and perhaps help you on your journey with God and learn from you as we journey together. So we're in the Gospel of Mark again this morning. And we are in Mark chapter 7 today, following Jesus, the Gospel of Mark, verses 24 through 30. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, sir, Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Let's pray. Jesus, we give thanks for you this morning and for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Be with us today as we worship as we praise you, as we pray and read your word. Lord, I ask for the gift of preaching today, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would show us how to see, show us how to hear your truth. Lord, help us to put that into practice. It's in your precious and powerful name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, let me say it up front. This text is bothersome. It's a strange, kind of unsettling story, isn't it? I know I'm not alone in this, because I I talked to some of you this past week, and I know that some of you echoed similar feelings, that this text, this story of Jesus has kind of puzzled you for a while, or gotten under your skin, or you've just really never understood what was going on. And so before we dive in, I wanted to just lay out a couple simple things for any of you who've struggled with this passage or struggled with any part of the Bible. And and so the first thing I wanted to say is that when you come across a passage that bothers you or unsettles you or something, just know that you're not the first Christian to notice that text right? You're not the first one. I know it feels isolating, and, it, and you can kind of feel alone, like, how has no one seen this before? This is, how do I fit this in? Am I the only person who recognizes this? You're not. 
and, and I'm not. And Christians for a long, long time have seen certain texts that were strange or odd, and they've been learning to read them for a long time. In fact, sometimes Christians as far back as 17 or 1800 years ago have, have found a really helpful way of reading a certain hard text. And so that leads to my my second little point this morning is that the Christian tradition has good resources for digging deeper, right? If if you want to go deeper, there are really good resources that we can point you towards. People have been been reading the Bible and trying to figure out how to follow Jesus from it for a long, long time. So if you're interested in, in resources, talk to Ben, Kelly, me, Leah. Talk to Jim Dvorak. If you really want to nerd out on the New Testament, look no further than our very own Jim Dvorak. There's good resources for digging deeper beneath the surface because we may not understand the text. And that leads to my third point this morning, that if you come across a text that maybe unsettles you, you might consider that maybe the text is unsettling you because you need to be unsettled, right? We all have blind spots. We all have our cultural blinders on. We all uh, miss things and develop caricatures of God or the gospel. We develop false portraits of Jesus, sometimes made in our own image. It might be that the text needs to unsettle us, right? Perhaps that's why it's unsettling at times. So I just want you to know this morning, you're not alone if you struggle with any part of the Bible. You're not alone. There's good resources for digging deeper. And perhaps, like the crowds in the Gospel of Mark, we can learn to follow Jesus even if we don't fully understand him. But before we jump into our story, I want to tell you another story. And this story comes from last year, the end of February 2020. So just weeks before the pandemic really kicks off here, and I went to Japan. And it was in Japan, I was there for one of my best friends in the world, Jacob Schuert, he was having a wedding reception. And so it's the end of February, I'm in Japan, and a certain event happens at this wedding reception. It's a great party, lots of speeches and celebration and conversation, and of course, like any good wedding reception, cake. And Jacob has, he's cutting the cake, he's actually laying it out on plates himself, and he's trying to serve his guests, and he figures, you know, the most natural way to give someone a fork on this plate so it doesn't fall off is just stick it in the top of the cake and hand it out. So he's sticking them out and doing all that. When a Japanese woman comes up and says, oh, you can't do this in Japan, no, and she starts plucking all the forks out of all the pieces of cake that Jacob has cut and laid out for his guests. And if we're looking at this story through American eyes, right away, probably the Japanese woman seems to be acting a little bit rude, right? This is Jacob's wedding reception. He's the groom. He's the one who's been laying out these pieces of cake for people and just Without asking, just this woman comes up and starts plucking out these forks. But what you may not know about Japanese culture is some of the funeral rites that they have. And one of those is for the family to serve the deceased a bowl of rice. And when they do that, they take two chopsticks and they plant them vertically, straight up and down, in the bowl of rice. 
So in Japan, if you ever go, it's a huge no-no. Never take your chopsticks and stick them straight up and down in food, in a bowl of rice. Don't do that because it reminds Japanese people of funerals, of mourning loved ones. It, It makes them sad. So Jacob was aware of that. But he didn't know that that applies also to forks and cakes at his wedding reception. So when you read the story through American eyes, this woman looks a little bit rude. But when you read the story through the eyes of the culture in which it took place, it's actually reversed. And this woman's actions are warranted. And Jacob, my my good friend, his actions might actually be a little rude. So we're in Mark 7 this morning. And if we read this story through American eyes, 21st century Western glasses, Jesus looks a little bit rude, right? He, he looks a little bit like he's kind of being rude to this woman. But if we can try to take off our American 21st century glasses for a second, If we can put on the glasses of the cultural context in which this story took place, perhaps we might see some interesting dynamics. Perhaps we might see the shocking activity of God's kingdom at work. So let's jump in together. Mark chapter 7, back in verse 24. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Remember, Jesus can really draw a crowd. But that's the last thing he wants at this moment in time. Jesus wants a little bit of time to chill out. But he can't get it, right? So this Syrophoenician woman, she's probably been asking around town about Jesus. The gossip mill's been churning. And she finds her way to Jesus and asks him for a favor. Asks him to exercise a demon out of her daughter. Now, what we should notice is that this is the first time Mark mentions explicitly a Gentile in the text. Right? This is probably not the first time that Jesus has expanded his mission to the Gentiles, but it's the first time we explicitly see a Gentile. So Jesus has probably already gone on mission to Gentiles, like for instance in Mark chapter 5, when he casts out the demons out of the legion of demons, right? And he puts them in that herd of pigs. There are pigs being raised in this area on the other side of the lake, so it's definitely not a Jewish area, right? Jesus has already gone to the Gentiles. But Mark explicitly notes it for the first time here in chapter 7. So so that's important. This, This Gentile woman comes, and she asks for a favor from Jesus, and here's how Jesus responds. In verse 27, he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. This is where the story starts to look a little strange. This is where Jesus starts to look a little bit rude. Uh, like, and almost maybe even a little bit insulting. Like, why, 
kind of reject this woman, and then there's the comment about the dogs. Like, what's going on with that? That seems a little bit insulting here. Now, as far as the word dogs, we should note that the Greek word for dogs there, it's the diminutive, so it could maybe be translated something like puppies more, or like house dogs, or lap dogs. Um, that's, that's a possible translation, and Jews didn't have a good view of dogs. They thought they were kind of scavengers running around, but Gentiles did, generally, so Jesus may be kind of adapting to her cultural context when he says that, but in general, it still feels a little bit insulting, right? There's still kind of this hierarchy in place that he's basically saying the people of Israel are the children, and the Gentiles are the house pets, Right? There's still a hierarchy in place that might make us uncomfortable, but we need to bookmark that and come back to it. But this is where we need to take off our American glasses. We've got to take off our 21st century Western glasses, and we need to try and put on 1st century Palestinian glasses. And when we do that, what we need to see is the dynamic of honor and shame. Okay, We've talked about honor and shame a little bit before, We don't really live in an honor-shame context. Jesus did, very much. It's all over the pages of the New Testament, this dynamic of honor and shame. And we could describe it that honor in that day and age was a little bit like wealth, right? It's something that you possess of value that you can lose. And so there are very strict rules for how people interact in an honor and shame society. And if someone challenges your honor and you don't respond appropriately, you could lose that honor. You could be shamed. People could act shamefully towards you. If you have honor but you act shamefully, you could lose that honor. So honor and shame is a really important lens through which we need to see this text because basically the bottom line is this woman has already acted shamefully. Okay, so no woman in that day, no Gentile woman, unknown, unrelated to this Jewish man, would have dared thought to intrude upon him and ask for a favor. That alone right there, looking through our glasses from that time and place, is shameful behavior. Right? So this woman intrudes in upon Jesus, and there's not a great analog from our culture, but you can even imagine if I bust through your front door at three in the morning and charge into your bedroom and demand a favor, you might be a little put off by that. Now imagine if it was a stranger. If I do that to a stranger, they're probably going to call the authorities. Right? So this woman has, has already acted shamefully in her approach to Jesus, And so Jesus responds then, though. Jesus responds to her with this kind of rebuff. And as we are a little bit offended by him rebuffing her, the original audience would have had it the other way, right? The original audience would have seen this story and not thought that Jesus' behavior is out of line. They would have thought this woman's behavior was out of line. Right? They would have thought, Jesus is inbounds. This woman, is, she's out of bounds. Like She's acting shamefully. Of course he kind of pushed her back a little bit. Right? So we see it a little bit differently than the first century would have seen it. But Jesus says this line, you know, let the children be fed first. Can't throw the children's food to the dogs. And then she answers him in verse 28. 
But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now what if I crash through a stranger's door, bust into their bedroom at three in the morning, demand a favor, they repel me, and I argue with them? Probably not gonna go any better. In fact, I've probably offended it even further and deepened the affront. That's a little bit like what's happening here. This woman has already acted shamefully, and then by arguing the point with Jesus, she's deepened the offense. She's deepened the affront to him. So right now, the first century audience reading this story, they're probably expecting Jesus to bring the hammer down, right? She's deepened this affront. Jesus should bring the hammer down, but what happens? In verse 29, something shocking happens. Then Jesus said to her, for saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. This woman affronts Jesus' honor. He rebuffs her. She deepens the affront. And Jesus says, you win. Okay. The first century audience reading this story would be shocked by Jesus' behavior at this point. He has ceded the debate to this woman. And this is the really spectacular thing, church, is that this is the only story I know of in all the Gospels where Jesus loses a debate. I can't think of any other story in the Gospels where Jesus actually loses an argument. Jesus is always winning the day. Jesus always demonstrates verbal mastery over all of his opponents. He demonstrates verbal mastery even over his prestigious male religious opponents, right? Jesus always wins the argument, except here. What's going on? What is going on in this story? Well, church, I think there's basically two ways to read this story. I think there's basically two ways. And one way we could read this story is that this woman comes in upon Jesus. He rebuffs her. She argues the point, wins the debate. Jesus loses and changes his mind. That's one way we could read it. But let's think about what we know about Jesus. Again, not only is Jesus always demonstrating verbal mastery, not only is he always winning the day, Jesus is always guiding events the ways he wants them to go. Right? Jesus is always in charge of the situation. He's always moving the events and the conversation where he wants to take them. And not only that, but we've already seen in Mark, Jesus has prophetic, supernatural-like insight. Jesus' perception is, is off the charts. It's otherworldly. Mark chapter 2, in verse 6, there's a story where some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak in this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Jesus is prophetically, supernaturally aware of people's hearts. He perceives, 
He knows what they want to say. He knows what they're wondering about. He knows their questions. He knows where it's going. So we can read this story as Jesus losing a debate and changing his mind, but church, I think the best way to read this story is that Jesus is not losing a debate and changing his mind. Jesus is losing a debate and changing the world. Jesus is intentionally losing a debate to this shameful pagan woman and changing the world. Jesus is losing a debate and changing the relationship between men and women, changing the relationship between Jew and Gentile, changing the relationship between insider and outsider. Right? The first audience seeing this They would have been offended when Jesus hands her the debate and happy when he rebuffs her. We're offended when he rebuffs her and we're happy when he hands her the debate, but we live in a world that springs from the life of Jesus. Jesus is intentionally provoking the faith of this woman. Jesus is intentionally provoking this woman to finally seize what God has to give her, what belongs to her now, which is the salvation of God's people. Jesus intentionally provokes this woman, and he's changing the world when he loses this debate. Jesus allows himself to be shamed. Jesus suffers the indignity of losing the argument so that he might open up to this Gentile woman. That's precisely what he says his followers are going to have to do, right? In, In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus suffers the indignity of opening up, losing the argument, and opening up to this Gentile woman because the Jews are going to have to do the very same thing. They're going to have to suffer the indignity of losing the argument and opening up their boundaries to the Gentiles. Jesus is losing a debate and changing the world. But there is an order to salvation, right? Both Jesus and the woman acknowledge that in their exchange. Salvation does come to the Jews first. God has scandalously covenanted himself to this particular people, Israel. That's important. That can't be lost. In fact, the apostle Paul says as much in Romans chapter 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This is important because we can't divorce Jesus from his Jewishness. We can't get rid of the order of salvation. We can't divorce Yahweh from Israel, right? Salvation comes first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, and guess what? That's us. As far as I know, I think everyone listening to this sermon is a Gentile, and when we read this story, if we're anyone in this story, we're the Syrophoenician woman. 
We are the ones who've had the boundaries open up to let us in. We are the ones who get to win the debate because Jesus has opened up the kingdom of God to the whole world. We are the ones who've been welcomed in. And it is a welcoming, right? It's, we didn't deserve it. We can't put God in debt. God didn't owe us. He's the creator. We're the creature. God doesn't owe us. God graciously gives. God graciously becomes least, lowers himself, opens up the boundaries to let us in, to give us a seat at the table. And Galatians says that we are adopted in as children. Jesus loses the debate, changes the world, and we are graciously included because it's only by grace that we can enter. And so church, now that we have a spot at the table, the question is turned on us. How will we, how will you become least for God's kingdom? Now it's our turn to become least. Now it's our turn to become servant of all. Now it's our turn to lose the argument and to open up the wideness of God's mercy that we might welcome in those outside. Because we live in the community that sprang from the words and deeds and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that to the weak, he became weak. Right? He's become all things to all people so that he might win them for the gospel. How will we? How will we become least? How will we suffer the indignity? How will we become servant of all that we might see Jesus and God's kingdom flourish in the world around us and in our community? Let's stand and praise Jesus, the servant and savior of all.